Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, this morning we are looking at Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. The title of our sermon is Power at Work Within Us. And the key words for our worshipers in training are spirit, power, and love. Now one of the greatest gifts that God has given to his church is the stories, the lives of of other Christians. I love reading about the lives of other believers, uh, those who have gone before us. Reading how the Lord saved them, how the Lord sustained them, all the work he did through them, all the things he taught them. I hope you read Christian biographies. You learn a lot. And the Lord can bring you to understand so much more about himself through them. Uh, Two of my favorite preachers are George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon. And Whitfield was actually in Savannah for quite some time. He said it was his favorite city in the world, and he thought one of the most beautiful places on the land. He pastored Christ Church. He started the Bethesda Home for Boys, which is still operating to this very day. Now, specifically of the writings of those who've gone before us, I like to read their journals. Now, I'm not a journal-keeping kind of guy myself, and not that anyone would ever care in the future, but it's not going to be there to read. But I do appreciate that a lot of men were journal writers, and because of them doing so, we find a lot of gold that can encourage us and spur us on in our Christian lives. In a lot of these journals, you find these wonderful sections where the writer recounts particular times of overwhelming communion with God in their lives, where they have this wonderful experience of God's nearness to them, of God's holiness being brought to bear on them, God's love in their lives. For example, George Whitfield, he wrote in one of his journals, The freeness and riches of God's everlasting love broke in with such light and power upon my soul that I was often awed into silence and could not speak. He said, stop it, God. I have to get my rest. The love, it's too much love. My being feels like it's groaning under something insupportable. I had to ask him to stay his hand. Describing a similar kind of experience, Charles Spurgeon was once preaching from Luke chapter 15, and he's teaching there on the parable of the prodigal son, and he explains the story. Uh, we know the story. The son goes off. He, he is in the pigsty and decides in the midst of that he's going to come home. He's going to confess his sin to his father, and uh, he's going to say, Father, I have sinned in heaven and in your sight. Take me back in. And of course, the parable tells us he came back and before he could say anything, the father ran out to him, jumped on him and hugged him and he kissed him and welcomed him home. And Spurgeon has this entire sermon. He's not even talking so much about the parable, not even one verse, but on this phrase, and kissed him. The whole sermon is about those three words. The title was, Many Kisses for Returning Sinners. And all the sermon was about was the fact that God's love 
Though it is many other things, God's love is meant to be experienced by the believer. And at one point in his sermon, he says this, some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we have almost had to ask for a stay of the delight because we could not endure it anymore. If the glory had not been veiled a little, we should have died of excess of rapture or happiness. Have you ever had that kind of communion with God? Now, these weren't some televangelist charismatics who go around saying that God talks to them all the time or that they were visited by an angel or had some dreams or visions or something crazy. These are simply men who experience communion with God that was so powerful and so fulfilling that they thought it was almost more than they could bear. Now, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul prays for the second time in his letter to the Ephesian churches. And in this prayer, he's going to ask for that, for his people, for God's people. He's praying that you and I, that we would have a deep sense of and and an experience of God's presence and God's love and God's glory in our lives to this extent, that we would commune with God in such a way that we would be brought to say ourselves, if the glory had not been veiled a little, we should have died of excess of joy. Before we get to the text, I want to remind us that in the previous 13 verses that we looked at last week, the Apostle Paul revealed to us that he is a prisoner. He was in chains. He said in verse 1, he was a prisoner for Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. And if we're going to understand Paul's prayer here, it's, it's good to know the context. He's in prison. It makes a big difference as we understand that. There's this great quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He gives thought to this reality. Lloyd-Jones, some of you think I'm going slow through Ephesians. He preached over 230 sermons in the book of Ephesians. And he got to this section and he said this, The important thing for us to realize is that what he is saying, in effect, is that though he is a prisoner, though a malignant enemy has arrested him and has put him into bonds and has made it impossible for him to visit them at Ephesus and to preach to them or to go anywhere else to preach, there is one thing that the enemy cannot do, and that is he cannot prevent him from praying. He can still pray. The enemy can confine him to a cell, he can bolt and bar doors, he can chain him to soldiers, he can put bars in the windows, he can hem him in and confine him physically, but he can never obstruct the way from the heart of the humblest believer to the heart of the eternal God. In many ways in this uncertain modern world of ours, this is one of the most comforting and consoling truths we can ever learn. Think of what this means to hundreds, not to say thousands of Christian people in various parts of the world at this moment. Some are in prison, some are in labor camps. They are subject to untold suffering and indignities, but thank God they can still assert stone walls do not a prison make nor iron bars a cage. The spirit of prayer is still free in spite of all the malignity and cruel tyrants. Men may forbid us to speak with our lips, 
But even where they were they to stitch our lips together, we can still pray in our spirits, still keep on praying to God. How's that for a perspective that looks beyond our current circumstances? And I think Lloyd-Jones captures the heart of the Apostle Paul beautifully. It doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter what I'm going through. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for me that we have this deep abiding communion with God. And how could Paul even know to pray such a thing? Because he'd experienced it himself. He lived it. He walked in it. And even in the midst of a prison sentence, he had no problem abiding in it. So let's read his prayer. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. It's page 977 in the blue ESV Bibles. We'll read the entire prayer, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now remember we said last week that Paul sort of begins his thought in verse 1 of chapter 3. And then verses 2 through 13 are sort of a parenthesis until he gets back to where he began in verse 14 again. So he picks back up where he's going in the first place and he begins to pray. And he's appealing to our Father, verse 15, the Father of the whole church on earth and in heaven. All who have been adopted as children into his family from every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation, all the household of God. God is our Father. God loves us. God embraces us. God invites us to commune with him. And Paul is praying for the Ephesians and and really even for us today, for his brothers and sisters. We are in the same family. We have the same Father. And so we're being prayed for by our brother Paul through his words here. And so Paul prays in light of this great truth that we are God's sons, we are God's daughters. He's praying for the church. Now the main emphasis here, we'll see, is in verses 16 through 19. So we're going to spend most of our time in those verses this morning. And it's here where Paul is praying three things specifically as it pertains to our communion with God. Paul prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we might grasp the fullness of Christ's love for us, and that we would be overwhelmed by and filled with the glory of God. So we're not looking at simply believing God, and we're not even simply looking at just obeying God. 
Paul is praying we'd go beyond even these things to the end for which we were created that we might actually experience God in communion, that we would experience his presence and his love and his glory, that we would encounter God in the sum total of his excellencies and the accumulated perfections of his being. Believing and obeying are good and right things. But believing and obeying are just instruments. They're just means. They are not the end in themselves. The end is communion with God. This is what we're aiming at. This is what we're shooting for. This is the Christian life, communing with our God. Now, before we get there, Paul says something else first. In verse 16... He prays for a preparation. He prays that God is working in our hearts to set us up for what's to come. He prays that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. In in other words, he's praying that the spirit of God would strengthen us so that we can commune with God and experience all that he is wanting for us. We need to be in good spiritual shape if we're going to have communion with God. Now you think about it physically. If all you do is sit behind a desk all day and you sit on a couch at night and you eat fast food and processed packaged food and drink soda and sweet tea all day, you're not likely to be able to get up in the morning and go run a marathon. It doesn't work that way. There's some preparation that needs to take place. You have to work up to it. You need to change your diet, your activity changes, your daily habits of life change a bit. They have to. And so in the same way, as it pertains to communion with God in our spiritual lives, there's a journey that takes place. There's a progression. And while God can come and intervene in a powerful way, ordinarily, communion with God takes time and it takes discipline. And all of us can say it waxes, it wanes, it comes, it goes. And if, if we are going to have any kind of sustained communion with God, we need to be prepared by God in order to do so. Now, right out of the gate, we're prone to say, fine. That's no problem. I'm going to get in great spiritual shape then. So what do I want to do? Well, I know I'm going to, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to call in sick tomorrow and I'm just going to pray all day. Well, that's a lie, so that's probably a bad way to start off communing with God. I'm going to take the day off work, and I'm just going to go, and I'm going to pray all day. I'm going to wrestle with God. I'm going to say, Lord, I want to commune with you. I want to know you. And listen, you can spend eight hours a day praying and reading your Bible and singing and fasting and seeking the Lord, and you might have true fulfilling communion with God. That could be a great step in the right direction. But it's unsustainable. It's unrealistic. And we're not looking for a flash-in-the-pan moment of spiritual high. We don't need a crash course. We need true, sustainable change from the inside that works itself out. So what is Paul saying? It's really remarkable. Paul is saying, when he asks that the Spirit may strengthen you with power in your inner being, he's saying that communion with God is such a magnitude that there is a need for God to actually prepare our inner beings to be able to take it all in. Otherwise, we would just crack under the weight of it all. 
In the same way that an overweight, out-of-shape couch potato can't go and run a marathon tomorrow, we all need God to prepare us before we can have sustained, beneficial, soul-satisfying communion with him. We need to be prepared or we won't be able to handle it. Remember what Whitfield and Spurgeon said? They felt the need to ask God to stay his hand, to hold back a little bit, lest they be destroyed by the greatness of it all. God, we feel like we're going to be destroyed by the greatness. We can hardly stand it. Have you ever experienced God in such a way? Not mystically. We're not talking about some charismatic experience. We're talking about having an encounter with God's word through either hearing it or reading it or hearing it read or preached to us. And in prayer where we have such a felt presence of God that does not escape us, it's a time where we're not raising doubts, we're not entertaining thoughts of the world, we're not filled with self-focus and self-concern, but we are singularly focused on God and him alone. Have you ever prayed to God and meditated on his promises from his word and just been so embraced by him that you thought, wow, I don't think I could handle anything greater. You see, the true beauty of communion with God is that we don't need mystical experiences because we have something far greater We have something that is anchored in objective truth and wrought by the Spirit of God in our hearts. And it fills us with strength and love and hope and assurance and peace and joy. And in these moments, we may be like the disciples who went with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is so beautiful. It is so overwhelming that we just want to pitch our tent and stay there forever. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want anything but this. Have you ever felt that way under God's word? Under the power of the spirit, under the the wonderful return of your prayers before God? This is what Paul is praying for. But in his prayer, he makes clear that the Lord must prepare us first because on our own, we cannot fathom it and we cannot handle it. Unless God undergird and strengthen us by the Holy Spirit, we are not capable of sustaining the majesty and power and glory and love of Jesus Christ. It is so overwhelming that we cannot bear the experience on our own. And and here's why Paul prays this specifically. Because most of us probably don't know this is actually even a thing at all. We rarely live under the full power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is something that is exceedingly rare that a Christian would commune with God in such a way as expressed by Whitfield and Spurgeon. But we should desire it. We should long for it. We should be praying that we would be overwhelmed by God in communion with him. It's available to us. But Jesus has to prepare us first. Have you prayed that you would have a greater experience of communion with God? 
I hope you will. And I hope you will begin to see God working to prepare you for greater measures of understanding, abiding in him and his word and prayer and in worship. Well, let's consider the three things that Paul identifies in more depth. First, he shows us in verse 17 that communing with God is Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. Look again at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Communing with God is Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. And it's interesting that Paul would write this because if you're a Christian... Christ does that already, doesn't he? That's the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. Christ dwelling in your heart by faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. Romans 8, John 14, you can find all kinds of places in the Bible that make this case, that this is what a Christian is. So Paul must have something else in mind here. What does he mean? If you came to me and you said, Pastor Nick, the power company turned off my power at home. I would ask, did you pay your bill? Well, no. You see, what had happened was I didn't pay my bill. (laughs) And I would ask, why not? Are you out of money for the month? Wouldn't it be a little bit odd if you said, no, I have about $20,000 in my checking account. I just didn't use it. It's there, but I'm not using it for anything. Now, does that make any sense at all? But here's the point. That $20,000 is completely meaningless to you unless it's put to use. If you don't withdraw it from the bank to pay your bills, it's useless. And what Paul is getting at here is similar in a spiritual sense. It's one thing to have God as your father and Jesus Christ as your elder brother and Lord and Savior and King, but it's another thing entirely to make a withdrawal, if you will. It's one thing to have Christ. It's another thing to completely experience Christ and make use of Christ. It's one thing to know that Christ is present with you. It's something entirely different to experience Christ with you. Not only knowing he loves you, but being rooted and grounded and inundated and surrounded by his love. Not just knowing that God is glorious, but to be filled with the fullness of his glory. So Paul is praying that God may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may experience the presence of Christ intimately within us. That we might experience the reality of his presence overwhelming us. Now, why don't we draw on this? Why do we so often lack in communing with God, even though Christ is dwelling in our hearts by faith? Because so often we would rather embrace the pollutants that inundate our hearts and minds by nature. Now look, for you, it may not be something like pornography or hateful contempt for others or stealing or lying. What about the worship of family? What about an obsession or a des- in, in a desire for something like safety 
What about being consumed by a pursuit of success? All of these things can be all-consuming. And as a result, in the midst of that, we make little use of the Lord Jesus Christ who's indwelling us. He's there, he's available, but so often we would rather look to ourselves and feed our fleshly desires and build our own personal kingdoms. And so we end up trading away infinite value and worth for the finite desires of ourselves. We trade infinite wisdom and infinite goodness and infinite nearness to embrace finite things that we seek our identity in and our pleasure in each and every day. I do it. You do it. And as a result, we don't even come close to experiencing Christ indwelling us in the ways that we could. Well, the next element Paul addresses, second part of verse 17 through 19, communing with God is grasping the fullness of Christ's love. Now, there's an old play. It's a tragic comedy called A Thousand Clowns. And in this play, a child comes to his mother and he says, I love you six. Now, he says that because six is the highest he can count. He can't think of anything bigger to say, so he lands on six. He, he's, he is stretching to the extent of his knowledge to express the magnitude of his love. It's, it's like stretching your arms out and saying, I love you this much. How would you measure God's love for the believer? Paul's trying to get us to wrap our minds and our arms around God's love for us, but words are inadequate. He, he piles words upon words to help us get something of a kind of idea, but it's just too big. And Paul's pushing us to stretch our minds to the limits of understanding to perceive God's love for his people. He says it's as long as eternity past. It's as wide as to include every nation. It's as high that it causes the angels in heaven to rejoice. It's as deep as to cancel out all the claims of hell on our souls. And I'm just scratching the surface. Have you experienced that love of Christ for you? It's of an unfathomable height. It's of an indescribable width. It's of an unimaginable breadth. It is inexplicably deep. But the reality for many of us is that we really experience very little of the love of Jesus in our lives because we have a tendency to base our understanding of his love on our experiences and our circumstances instead of abiding in what Christ has done for us. The love of Christ is seen most vividly, most prominently on the cross. And the cross of Christ for the believer functions like a a magnet with our hearts. And the more we move toward the cross, the more it draws us downward to our knees in humility. And it's there that we encounter the love of Christ. 
The world will often say, God loves me because God loves everybody. But you know, they don't really believe that because they refuse to go where love truly is, which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So here's a question that gets to the heart of what Paul is praying that we experience in God's love. It's a test for us. When you want to know and be reminded that God loves you, when you want that reality fixed on your heart, when you want to be reminded that you are a child of God and he loves you six, where do you turn? Most of us probably look at our circumstances first. And we want to say, I have a great family, I have a nice home, I have a job, I'm healthy, I'm happy, therefore I know God loves me. That's our natural instinct to think that way. But we need our minds to be renewed because we're not even scratching the surface with thinking like that. The test by which we can see whether or not we're experiencing something of the love of God in our lives is found when all of our circumstances are dead set against us. When we're falsely imprisoned and we're, being, we're waiting to be beheaded. Where do we fix our eyes then? On Christ? On his cross? We cannot have a mindset that everything is working out, therefore I have proof that God loves me. That's not going to last. Because everything's not going to work out in this life. No, God gave his son for you. That's how you know. Jesus died for you. That's the love of Christ for you. How often do you meditate on that reality? To me, it's one of the most wonderful things that we confess. Jesus didn't just die to make salvation possible for anyone and everyone. Jesus actually died for you if you are his child. By name, he had you in mind when he went to the cross and died. Do you ever contemplate that marvelous reality? We sing about it. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Friend, do you know the love of Jesus? Have you looked to Christ on the cross that you might have life? He's calling on everyone to die to ourselves, to acknowledge in our sins, in our brokenness, in our natural state of being, we are in need of him. And he calls on all men everywhere to trust in Christ, that we might live upon Christ, full of love, full of assurance, full of peace that surpasses all understanding. If you're not in Christ, would you go to him? Run to Christ. Fall before him in humility. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus alone. Well, the third thing Paul prays, the second part of verse 19, is that communing with God is being overwhelmed by and filled with the glory of God. I love the words in the song, 
turn your eyes upon Jesus, where it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. How often do you look to God? How often do you look to Christ and find in your heart a longing, an insatiable longing for more of him? Knowing that experiencing God is more vital than anything you have imagined. Does your heart cry out for more of God? Riches, peace, prosperity, fame, comfort, health, happiness, obedient children, a good boss, a stable job, a hefty bank account. These things consume us. How often in the midst of that do we say, I want more of God? Another great hymn. We sing some wonderful songs around here. You may not always like the music that goes with it, but pay attention to the words. They're so rich and so full of amazing truth. Have you thought about these words? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And not only understanding what those words mean, but abiding in them, believing in them, living by them. Do you think that way about life? Let it all go. I don't care. I just want more of God. I want to be overwhelmed with, I want to be filled with the glory of God. And to have that experience of the weight of God's glory means the things of this earth will grow dim because... You are remarkably steady in Christ. Nothing excites like God himself. In comparison, everything in this world is light and dim comparatively. All of the good, all of the bad. It's what we've been looking at in Sunday school. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The glory of God is eternal. Where are you fixing your eyes? On what or on whom are you gazing? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and you will begin more and more to experience the weight of God's glory as the things of this world grow dimmer and dimmer and dimmer in your life. We could spend our entire lives, even as Christians, trying to suck love and hope out of all the other things around us, wanting to be made happy. And without knowing it, our meditations, our worship, our communion is in other things and other people other than Christ. And when that's happening, we can't commune with God. The things you most delight in cannot possibly give you what the glory of God can give you. Especially not to the extent of someone like a Whitfield or a Spurgeon as we read. But there is a power at work within us as the Holy Spirit indwells us. As the love of Christ is for us and undergirds us and supplies us with all that we need when we draw upon him. 
A lot of times what will happen is that we get in this sort of tug of war at some point. Maybe we have a problem, it shakes us up a bit. It brings us to the realization that everything we've been looking for will not save us, will not give us what we're wanting, so we begin to pray more. Maybe a lot more than we've ever done before. And so you begin to experience a bit more peace. You're getting a little bit of a taste of what we've been talking about, some communion with God. But we don't have to live our lives long or read much of the Bible to know that men and women are fickle. Our problem goes away, and what happens? We get out of the habit of praying. We get out of the habit of pursuing God. But something remains. Something really has changed because we've tasted it. We've had something of communion with God, and so we have this longing for more of it. And then we press on and we have this back and forth with God. We want more of him, but we struggle to utilize all the means of grace. We struggle to take Christ into our lives more and more. And for many of us, it's not until God brings something into our lives that leaves us feeling utterly unworthy and unlovable that we really dive in headfirst to seeking communion with God. And it's here where our affections are shifting more. Our thoughts are being redirected. Our eyes are fixed more and more on Christ that we can know more of his love. We can be more overwhelmed by his glory. And in a more disciplined way, you learn how to meditate on the word of God. You learn how to seek his face more in prayer. And for the first time in your life, you begin to experience a regular not always, not, not relentless, not total, but a regular experience to a greater or lesser degree of the communion of God. We begin to understand what it means to meditate on God's word. Richard Baxter wrote, meditation is praying the truth into the soul until it catches fire. I love that description. In other words, it is, it is seeing that truth in its personal connections and, and, and actually beginning to experience the power of that truth and so to experience the presence of God as well. On a real practical level, I, I think a lot of us are missing this. Here's the thing. Most of us will probably read our Bibles and maybe think a little bit about what we read and then we'll set that aside and then we will begin to pray And we'll pray, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, all this. But we've missed something really important in the middle there. And that is praying the truth that we've read in God's word into our souls that it might catch fire. Figuring out what God wants me to know, wants me to apply from what I've read, and then praying that down into my soul. And then we move on in our prayers. Read God's word and then pray God's word into your soul and do not let him go in prayer until you know that he's at work in your life and all of these things are are making sense and you're beginning to understand how it applies and God is changing you by his word. So you see, we've taken... 
the wonderful means of grace, the intake of God's word and prayer, and we, we put them together and make greater use of what God has given to us. That's what it means to meditate on his truth. And we're commanded to do that. Psalm 1 tells us that godly men delight in the law of the Lord, and upon the law we meditate day and night. And, and the, the, the Hebrew meaning of meditate is interestingly the same uh, description that's used uh, of a cow who chews its cud, constantly redigesting and, and constantly going over until it completely works itself out of the physical system. And so we're commanded to do that with the truth of God's word. And we do that with praying from our minds into our hearts from a knowledge of the truth until it's in the very fiber of our being. Now, none of this is going to happen overnight. It's a journey. It's a long journey. And some of us, most of us, have a long way to go still. So don't rush out thinking, I need to crush everything around me and stop doing everything I like in this life because I need more opportunities to seek communion with God. The reality is that, that part of communing with God is learning how to do the everyday things of life that we enjoy and even the things that we don't enjoy in such a way that we in our hearts have a consciousness of God's love and glory day by day and minute by minute. Now, here's what I hope for all of us, myself included. I want us to think more on this. How can we be more like blind Bartimaeus? Remember him, Mark chapter 10? Bartimaeus was a blind man, and he knew that Jesus was coming into town, and to get there, he had to go down a certain path. He didn't know when it was going to be, but he knew Jesus was coming. And so, he pitched a tent by the side of the road. And he was saying, I know Jesus is going to come sometime, so until that happens, I'm staying right here and waiting for him because he can do something for me that nobody else can. He can change me, he can make me new, he can give me eyes to see. Brothers and sisters, if we commit ourselves to camping out where we know Jesus is, he's going to show up. And where is Jesus? He's in his word. He's in, a, he's in our prayers of faith. He's in our meditations on the truth. He's, he's among his people. He's here now with us. And so while you may go to these places and sit and wait, and, and you may not always sense that he's traveling by, that is the path to be on. Don't leave. Don't go elsewhere because Jesus is coming. He's promised that. So stay there. He's coming. He'll be there. It may not feel like it today. You may not see him in the distance, but he's coming. He promises, and God never falls back on his promises. One other thing Bartimaeus did, when Jesus finally did come, he started to cry out, regardless of who was around him, they were all telling him to be quiet. Bartimaeus, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Is that your cry? Is that your heartfelt cry as you meditate on the truth of who God is? Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. If that's your cry, he will. He will. 
Lord Jesus Christ, I want your reality. I want your presence. I want to experience you. I want to truly and lastingly commune with you. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. He will come. He will come because he has promised us, you will seek me and you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. I know you want more of God if you're a Christian. I do too. And so this morning... Let's close this text with the very words of the Apostle Paul in verses 20 and 21. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power of work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there is a great power at work within us preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. May it be that each and every one of us would have greater communion with God. That we could be so overwhelmed by the love of God that we would have the great weight of God's glory on our hearts trusting that God can do more than we will ever understand and more than we could ever ask or pray for for all his great glory and so that we might know more and more of him. We want that. And so we ought to be asking God to give that to us as Paul prayed that he would do as well.